session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Talakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Before I begin with the books, let me make another announcement for the seminars I'll be doing in Atlanta, not this weekend, but next weekend, August 10th and August 12th at the Persian Cultural Center of Atlanta. On August 10th, I'll be doing a seminar on dating and relationships from 7 to 10 p.m. And on Sunday, August 12th, I'll be doing two seminars, one on success from 2 to 5 p.m. and the second one from 6 to 9 p.m., self-esteem and self-love. Tickets are available at the door, but you also can get them at www.kanoon.info, www.kanoon.info. That's August 10th and 12th, so if you're in the Atlanta area, hope to see you there. Uh, Before I I begin with the book of the week for this past week, let me tell you the book for this week. Uh, It is Why You Eat What You Eat by Rachel Hertz. Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food. So looking forward to reading this one and sharing it with you next week. Likely it'll be on Wednesday's show because Monday of next week, uh, I'll be joined by Dr. Jonathan Morabian, who is a neurologist, and he will be talking to us about strokes and how we can detect when we or a loved one might be having one and what we can do. So looking forward to having him on next week's show on Monday. All right, the book of the week for this past week was How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation by N.J. Enfield. And this book was more on the linguistic side than a psychological book, but it very much relates to psychology and communication, and there was a lot related to it, and I just found the book very interesting and fascinating. It was really the first book I read on this topic, um, and I really did enjoy it. So How We Talk, that's the title of the book. And the author talks about how when people generally would study linguistics or study language, they would look at the words that people use. For example, the words you'd find in a dictionary and what they mean and how they were used, maybe their roots, all those kinds of things. But very often they wouldn't actually study how people talk, how conversations take place. And the fact that there are a lot of things that happen in conversations that aren't really part of what we think of as just pure language. For example, a lot of what we say in a conversation might not even be words. For example, saying things like, mm-hmm, huh, um, or other types of phrases like that happen very often. For example, one out of every 60 words we say is um or uh. So to not include those when we're studying how people talk 
is missing a lot of what's actually going on. So he uh, has done a lot of research and he talks about a lot of research in this book, looking at how we talk, not just looking at language as something static or just the words that you find in a dictionary. Because a lot of things that aren't in a dictionary are very important in how we actually communicate. So I thought that was interesting. And so he talks about how essentially he calls uh, what we have a conversation machine. And it's what both people, or if there's more than two people, um, engage in or use to communicate. Certain rules that we use, certain things that we assume, and the fact that being in conversation is a collaborative effort. When you and someone else are talking, you are collaborating together. You are agreeing in a way to certain rules of how you're going to communicate, even though, no pun intended, it's unspoken rules, but there are rules to how we talk. And so he calls this the conversation machine. So for example, uh, he talks about how conversations do have rules. For example, if I'm talking to you and I ask you a question, it's expected that you're going to respond to my question. Now, either you're going to answer it, yes or no. Maybe you'll say you can't answer it. You can even say you don't want to answer it. But it's expected that you're going to address the question I asked and answer it in some way. And if you didn't do that, I would be maybe upset with you and rebuke you, and you would understand that I would not be happy, that you would not be responding. Now, something that wasn't talked about in this book, but that came to my mind was uh, how so much of our communication now happens via text. And so many people are essentially talking through text, and this itself has a whole new set of um, rules that can happen or can be broken or that are established that I think will be an interesting line of research because uh, through text, sometimes people don't respond to your question. Or of course, you might say a few things in a row and they might not have to address all of them. And so avoiding things can actually become a lot easier and in some ways more socially acceptable. But still, if you ask someone a question and they never respond, you don't feel very good about that. But in some ways, it's a little bit easier via text than if you were on the telephone or face-to-face and you ask someone, hey, are you coming tomorrow? You would expect some kind of response if it was face-to-face or on the phone, but on text, it's possible for someone to just dodge that question. So anyway, there, I think, are probably different rules that we'll start seeing um, as we study text as opposed to spoken language and communication. But so he looks at a lot of different things, for example, the timing of conversation, which was really interesting, uh, and that there is such intricate timing in how we communicate, and we tend to respond at around 200 milliseconds or uh, two-tenths of a second when we're communicating to each other, meaning that when I stop speaking, um, you'll start talking at about 200 milliseconds or somewhere in a small window of time. But really to think about what you have said and to process that and to think of what I want to say and to create the sounds of what will be my words it's going to take longer than that. So what that means is actually somehow when we are attuned to each other and in most conversations, I'm aware of when you are going to stop talking. And with that, I can already start to think of what I'm going to say in response to that. So there's very little time in between when you finish and I start. And all of these types of things that I'll talk about really are happening unconsciously. You don't think about them, but we just naturally do them. And that's why he talks about this conversation machine. There seems to be almost some uh, cognitive 
machinery and also social machinery that's in place that allows us to have these seamless conversations with very few gaps, even though thinking of what to say and listening to someone else does take us some time. And because of that, we tend to be pretty good about not cutting each other off. Of course, sometimes we cut each other off because we want to get in our words, but we tend to be good at knowing when someone is going to stop talking. Even though, again, we might not consciously be aware of it, there are things that we do in our tone, the pitch, the length of the syllables even, that affect how you know I'm going to stop a sentence and not keep going. And when I'm hearing you talk, I can pick up on that and know when you're going to be done. He actually um, shares the stories of how uh, Margaret Thatcher was kind of notorious for getting cut off by interviewers. And the reason was, and they, when they analyzed some of her speech, is that she didn't follow some of these rules that we're used to. So sometimes people would think she was done speaking, but she would still be in the middle of her thought and would continue. And so the interviewer would be cutting her off and seeming even rude, but it was because there was something she was doing that was changing the way they would pick up on what she was saying. So I don't think about, okay, let me end the sentence in this way so you know I'm ending and you can start talking, but I do it unconsciously, which I think is pretty interesting and shows how much it becomes an innate part of ourselves to know that. Now, related to this back and forth, we also know that the length of time between when I stop speaking and you start is very telling. And this is, again, why when we talk about language, as he points out, it's important not to just focus on words and the meanings of words, but how people communicate. Because we all know that when we talk, there's so much more to the words, our eye contact, the tone of your voice, the way you express things, and even what I'm going to talk about next, the pause in between when we respond can be very important and telling in how we communicate. For example, if I ask you, hey, can you give me a ride tomorrow? Based on how long it takes for you to respond, I'm going to feel whether or not I think it's likely you're going to take me, even if you say yes. So if I say, hey, can you give me a ride tomorrow? The more immediately you say yes, or the more within this window that we all unconsciously know that you say yes, the more likely I think that you will do it. But once it passes a thir certain threshold, I'm going to think it's more and more unlikely that you want to actually say yes, even if you say yes, or that you're going to follow through. And they did this by um, playing for people a conversation, and someone made a request, and then they would change the amount of time that it took for the person to respond, sure. And based on how long it took, people would think the person was less likely to respond with more time. And the interesting part is that we're not talking about huge lengths of time. We're talking about tenths of a second. It's something that would be hard for us really even to uh, measure quickly in our head. But when they slow it down, we see that there are these gaps that we are very good at picking up on. These very subtle, when someone hesitates, it can be very subtle. It can be a fraction of a second, but we pick up on that. So even in our delay, we communicate something. Or they found that when people want to say no, they're more likely to kind of slow themselves down anyway, even if they respond quickly. So you say, hey, can you take me to, to the airport tomorrow? They might cough or say, um, or uh, or say other words that fills in some gaps. And he explained it in some ways. And to me, I think it's also a way of showing 
it's difficult for me to disagree with you or I don't like to disagree with you or I don't feel very good about disagreeing with you. So I add these kind of things to make it more tentative or make it seem that it's hard for me to get this out. But we kind of realize these things even if we're not aware of them consciously. But once I was reading this book, so many things that naturally I do and I observe in conversation became very apparent. Uh, and I thought that was quite interesting. Another thing is the ways that we direct conversation when we're talking to each other by, for example, if we're you're telling me a story, I might stop you here and there because I'm not sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So I might say who or what happened there or something else that lets you know I want to get clarification. And it's interesting because there's ways that we can do this that are more specific and ways that are less specific. If you tell me it's Sarah's birthday tomorrow and I say who, then you know specifically I want clarification on whose birthday it is. But if you say it's Sarah's birthday tomorrow and say, huh? That just makes you have to repeat the whole thing because you don't know which part of the sentence I had issue with or I didn't quite understand. And in the research, they found that people are much more likely to use a specific uh, question or specific interruption than the less specific ones, making it easier for the person to respond and also to make the conversation more efficient and work more quickly. So it was interesting to analyze, to see this analysis of language in a way I hadn't quite seen, but a lot of the things made sense. Or another interesting thing that uh, they showed, and I just did an uh right there, which is funny because that's what I'm going to talk about next, was that when people, let's say, called a person, after they did a little small talk introduction, once they wanted to get to whatever it is they had, the purpose of their call was, they regularly added an uh. So, for example, you say, hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, what's new? Not much. Blah, 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 blah. Then they say, uh, so listen. And then they would get into what they wanted to say. But they very regularly added that uh. And so as he argues in the book, we can say, well, this uh is just kind of a mistake or a performance that we do or something that we that just happens in speech, but it's not really part of language. But if it's happening with this kind of regularity and this frequency and consistently used in certain ways, that should make us think it does have some meaning and some purpose. It's not just some throw out words or sounds that we can just not pay attention to. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, so there's a, a lot of things he talked about throughout the book about how we talk. Another interesting one was the universality of the word, huh? Um, and they looked at many different languages from English itself, but then Dutch languages speak spoken in Iceland and Ghana and Spain, uh, Namibia, and they found that they all had a word very similar to huh that meant the same thing. Whereas when we looked at other words, we don't see that same universality between languages. And the thing about the word huh, which of course means I didn't quite get what you're saying, is that it's an easy one to produce. So no matter who the person is or what the language is, it's easy to make that sound. And it might be a little bit different in different languages, but it makes sense that there's this word that we have or this way of responding that's an easy way, a quick way to say we're not sure what you're saying. Um, and it's fascinating to see that in different languages all across the world, we see that it universally seems to exist. I thought that was, that was quite fascinating. Um, so we see that the way we communicate, although we think of the words as the important part, and when you're, for example, reading a book, very often it doesn't have these things. And it's something that makes me think about how natural something appears if it doesn't include these ums and ahas and uhs that happen in normal conversation. 
and that this is really something worth studying further. And as he talks about in the book, there's a lot of research to further understand or that needs to be done to further understand what these words mean and how we use them and how language is processed in the brain with these types of things included. So um, the book was really fascinating. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. It's How We Talk by N.J. Enfield, How We Talk, The Inner Workings of Conversation. It'll make you think twice and realize a lot of things about the way we talk and communicate and things that have very subtle meanings but actually mean a lot in, in letting each other know what we want to say and what we don't want to say. So that was the book of the week for this week. Again, the book for next week is Why You Eat What You Eat, The Science Behind Our Relationship with Food by Rachel Hertz. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Lokwi. We'll be right back. Back, studio number 3104410555. What I want to talk about next is um, self esteem, which is something I'll be talking about in Atlanta on August 12th. Um, but something that came to me as I was talking to a few people recently, and it's also interesting, by the way, after reading this book, I notice more when I say things like, uh, so I'm going to try to not be as conscious about it because it interferes with my thinking. Um, but what I was thinking about is how we sometimes talk about how we feel something is missing within us or something is empty or there is a void. Uh, maybe it's our self-esteem, the way we look at ourselves, feeling lovable, feeling that we are worthy of being in a relationship, but we can often feel like something is missing, that there is an emptiness within us. And most people feel this in some way. Some people might feel it very significantly. This is going to be especially the case if you didn't get the love you needed as a child from your parents, the primary caregivers, to make you feel special, to make you feel loved, to make you feel like you were enough as you were. That's really what's missing. And of course, none of us is going to get that perfectly. So we all have that missing to different degrees. But for some people, it can be a very significant hole or void that we have. And so what happens is when we carry with us this void, what we try to do is, as makes sense, is fill it up, right? If I tell you there's a bowl and has an emptiness, you fill it up with things from the outside. And so this can come in a variety of ways, lots of different ways. Sometimes and very often it could be from performance. Well, if I behave perfectly or if I achieve perfection or the top of my class, top of some let's say art or performance, whatever it might be, if I continue to perform, then people will love me for that. Something's missing in me, but that way I can get some kind of love and attention and approval and validation. But of course, this feels like a drug because you can feel good for a moment, but then it goes away again because it really hasn't filled the void. You need to try to keep performing at that level to keep getting that love. It never feels fully genuine that it's just for you. And so it's always going to be temporary. It's always going to be a temporary feeling of fullness that you get. And this is what we see from a lot of people that have achieved considerable success in some type of performance, whether it's becoming a famous singer or famous athlete or comedian, they can be on a high while they're on stage or when they're performing 
and get a lot of attention in that moment it feels good but as soon as they step off the stage if the emptiness is there from within the things from outside from out the without cannot fill that in so sometimes people seek to perform to gain that which is missing within them to get love for what they don't have within themselves another way is to become what we think people will like and this is a very common one and all of us do this to a different degree if i become attractive physically in a way that people like if i become the type of personality that people like then maybe i can be good if i can take pieces from the outside maybe i can act like this person or act like that person and wear these different masks to fill in what's missing within me then i can get loved then i can get approval or if i become beautiful people will give me attention and will love me but again these feel very empty too because when it's for something like the surface like your looks it can feel good momentarily but of course your looks will go away to begin with but also it doesn't feel great that they're liking you for something so much on the outside on the surface of who you are and again it's going to have to get fully replenished regularly for you to feel good and this is what we see um, with things like social media i know very often people who are depressed might post a picture and the likes as i talk about likes and follows are like the new drug of the digital age so they post the picture and then they check and they see oh 10 20 100 likes and it gives them a good feeling but it's very very short-lived good feeling temporarily they feel good and but that comes back down after a while and they feel bad again and the emptiness is still there so it's a momentary good feeling that they get but it doesn't fill them up again you can't fill up from the outside something that is a void from within nothing will fill it up permanently it will just feel like a drug and that brings me to the next way that people deal with this emptiness which is various kinds of addiction whether it's drugs or alcohol food gambling sex there's different ways that we try to fill this void and in a way connect to something and there's a lot of people that now talk about addiction as being a lack of connection or coming from a lack of connection and there's there's definitely a lot there to show that we're trying to connect to something something that's missing and we're doing it through the drug or the substance or the behavior whatever that might be so people use the drug and if they feel good momentarily but of course the drug is going to wear off and they're going to come back down and maybe even come back down even harder and worse than they were before the drug and will be left still with that same emptiness or it's a behavior like sex and momentarily they can feel very connected to someone and feel very good and feel the pleasure and the connection and the intimacy and to some degree it's going to be a false intimacy and closeness but then that's going to go away too the the emptiness the void within stays there so we seek these various ways to fill up this void within ourselves. And what does it mean we think of ourselves? We think that we are not enough, that something is missing within me, and that's why there is this void. So what can I grab from the outside to fill that void so that I'm not feeling empty anymore, so that I'm enough? And we think we have to get something from the outside because that's what seems to make sense. But what's interesting is, and this is something I've noticed in working people in, with people in the course of therapy and just talking and just thinking about this is that it's not something from the outside that is going to fill this void. It's something from within. 
And it's not even something that we have to create. What it really it is mostly is awakening parts of ourself that we have closed off, shut down, um, told ourselves not to express or have been told not to express, but it's parts of ourself that are there. So it's essentially this void is that there's deflated parts of yourself that if you fill back up, they will fill the void. So the void is not going to be filled up by something from the outside. It's from within ourselves, things that you already have. So for example, you might not feel like you're enough and you might be putting away the bold part of yourself, the part that can take risks, the part that can be uh, take initiative and try to make things happen. And you might think, well, I can try to be like other people that can do that. I can try to act like this person or read about this person and live their life. But you can never live their life. You have to live it as you. And it's not that you don't have those parts or that you haven't let those parts be expressed. So we have to let those parts of ourselves out. We have to let that part of us come out. Um, or for example, you might think, well, I can never be um, a loving person. It's not that you can't love. It's that you have for some reason cut this part of yourself off. A common experience that people have is, for example, they take away their angry part of themselves. If in childhood you had one or both parents express a lot of anger, or maybe if anger was repressed or suppressed, in your family, it's possible that you learn that this part of yourself is unacceptable, that I should never be angry. And so you disown completely that part of yourself, put it away and say, I'm going to be the person that never gets angry at anyone at any time. And you do this unconsciously, so you're not aware that you do that. But when we disown any part of ourself, we become empty. We don't feel full. And so that's when we have that feeling of emptiness. But what we have to do is first recognize that that decision we made, that anger was bad, that we should have, we should never be angry, we should never experience or express anger, that that decision was the problem, not that we were the problem or our anger was the problem. And then we can tap in and then recognize that we can express this anger in a healthy way and we can still be okay and still be lovable. So the answer to filling that void. And very often people go to therapy for that reason of feeling that void. And we all feel it to different degrees. But the way that we fill that void up is never going to be from the outside. It's not about putting on a mask or becoming someone else or getting rid of parts of ourself. It's actually about awakening parts of our psyche, parts of our personality that are there that we have for some reason disowned and put away. And as I've talked about before, we sometimes think, well, I have to become someone else to become lovable. I have to wear these masks to be good or be appreciated or get the attention I want. But what we don't realize is that what's within ourselves is much greater, much more beautiful, much more uh, meaningful than anything that we could try to pretend to be. Being ourselves at the core is what's going to be most uh, magnificent and will help us reach our potential. And so very often in another way of looking at this, people think I need to get rid of this part of myself or I need to get rid of this emotion or this feeling or this aspect of my personality. And when they come to therapy, they might come with that type of mindset that I have to get rid of these parts of myself. But 
what I try to tell them is actually quite the opposite is going to happen. We're going to integrate the different parts of yourself. You're still going to keep that part that you maybe think is ugly. And first of all, that's part of the issue is that you think it's ugly in some way, recognizing that it's necessary, you need it, and it's part of who you are. But we also have to awaken the other parts and integrate that into a whole, complete person. See, we're not the whole that we feel, the void that we feel is that we're not complete in ourselves. Not because something is missing in who we are, but something is missing in who we are allowing ourselves to be. Something is missing in the parts of myself that I'm allowing to be expressed. And so I feel a void, not because I'm not enough, but because I'm not letting myself be enough. I'm not letting myself express who I am at the fullest. So those voids will never be full, filled outside. We always have to look in and we have to all look into ourselves and see what parts of ourselves we have disowned, what feelings, what aspects of our personality, what parts of our vitality, of pushing ourselves, of being creative or of being connected, of being in a relationship, of being loved and being loving, of expressing feelings like maybe anger or sadness. What are the parts of ourselves that we have put away and also try to understand the why and if we can unpackage that and slowly recognize that we can be ourselves to the fullest degree, we will no longer feel that void and emptiness and we will be living our lives and living ourselves as at the fullest potential, at the full part of who we are. Every aspect of us can be expressed and revealed and no longer will we feel empty. So you don't need to fill yourself up from with anything from the outside. You just need to become more of who you are and everything you need to be is already within you. You don't need to seek it from others or find it from someone else. You have to find it within yourself. All right, going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Talakwi. Uh, I posted on Instagram asking people to share questions or topics they wanted me to cover tonight. And one that was related to what I just talked about came from Azar1313. She asked that I talk about addiction. And since I mentioned addiction in talking about how we try to fill that void that is missing from within... Um, with a substance or a behavior, I thought I could talk a bit about addiction and to respond to that. So thank you for sharing that uh, request and also to many others who also gave their requests. I'll take a look at those and maybe talk about them on future shows um, to uh, answer or respond to those topics that you talked about. So addiction, of course, is a huge issue, one that in these last 15 minutes or so I won't be able to uh, talk about even a fraction of what's involved there, but wanted to talk a little bit about this very important topic that affects so many people and leaves many people when they're either going through it themselves or have a family member going through it puzzled as to what to do and how to help. Um, to begin with, addiction is a very powerful disease and issue. It is something that can really overtake someone's life and literally end their life. But it's very sad to see someone to going through it because you see how much it takes away from who they are. Now, to begin with, we can tend to think of someone who's addicted as weak, unfortunately. There is that stigma. And there is very much this us and them. 
even if you think, oh, that addict or that druggie or different, a junkie or other negative terms that we have that are judgmental about someone who is addicted and going through addiction. And to just blame someone who's going through it as it's all their fault, I think is really missing how serious this issue is. It's not something simple that anyone could just avoid being addicted or that you're not an addict because you're stronger than those who become addicted or you're a better person even morally. Sometimes there's even a moral way that we look at people who are an addict in a negative way and think we're superior to them morally because we are not addicted. And this is really sad and unfortunately adds to the stigma that people go through with addiction which contributes to their suffering because they are notoriously very hard on themselves. So when society looks down on you, you of course are likely to look down and judge yourself very harshly, but also makes it harder for people to seek help when you know that by admitting that you're an addict, somehow it's admitting weakness, admitting that you're morally less than or whatever else society might be telling you, of course, it's going to make it less likely for you to want to accept that you have a problem and to then seek out help. And that's very unfortunate. And of course, we know with any issue, but definitely with addiction, one of the biggest first steps necessary is to acknowledge and admit that you have a problem. So when we have these judgments and this stigma that's attached to addiction, we're definitely doing a disservice and causing a lot of harm to individuals who might be dealing with this very serious issue. So if you have this idea that you are better than non better than addicts because you're not addicted, I hope you can take that out of your head. And very likely you're addicted to something. Now maybe it's not as um, serious as a drug that's harming someone, fortunate for you, but you're probably addicted to something. Sometimes people talk about being addicted to their smartphone. And very often people do show clear signs of addiction when it comes to their phones. But again, the costs are in a way less than what we might see with a drug, but they can be very severe in how they affect our relationships, our productivity, and even our connection to ourself. So before you get too high and mighty about yourself that you're not addicted to a drug, it's very likely you're addicted to something, that you use something in a way to cope with your feelings feelings of emptiness, feelings of loneliness, anger, sadness, that maybe isn't so healthy or that isn't a pathological way if we look at that. So I hope we take that away, this idea that we look down on those who are suffering in this way, because indeed that's what's going on. They are suffering. And if we just look at drug addiction itself, and really any addiction, the reason why drug addiction can happen is that drugs are very powerful. In a way, we can say, of course, not long-term, but in short-term, drugs work. They can make people feel very good. And we know that sometimes people who are more prone to addiction, they might even actually feel better than others or the typical person might feel. And so this, unfortunately, makes them more prone to addiction because it's going to feel even better to them than, than someone else. So drugs make people feel really good in the short term. And that, of course, does feel nice and we know that all humans were giving into short-term pleasure all the time. This is why I talked about on last week's show that phrase that I tried to coin of make tomorrow day two, because we know that when we try to make a goal, very often we think, okay, I'm going to start tomorrow. I'll start the work tomorrow, but today I still want to enjoy things. In this moment, I still want to 
take the drug, eat the food that I want to eat, not read or not work or whatever it might be, but tomorrow I'm going to start. And that's just our way of tricking ourselves into thinking tomorrow I can do it, but also in tricking ourselves into allowing ourselves to enjoy today, that I get to give into immediate gratification and pleasure. So our brains are tricking us in this way all the time. And actually it takes some willpower, it takes some planning and preparation, and even in a way we can call it work, to keep ourselves from giving in to this immediate gratification and temptation. So drugs, they work. They get the job done in the way that they do. But of course, they work temporarily, and not only do they not help us with whatever problem we were dealing with that helped us, that was contributing to us feeling bad enough to want to use the drug, but also now we often have a new problem, which can be our drug use and the addiction and the consequences of whatever that substance is and whatever our level of addiction is. And that's obviously where the huge problem comes in. But we do this in a lot of ways. You don't feel very good about working on your paper, so you avoid it to get away from that emotion. But of course, all that does is means you have less time now and you're going to be even more stressed once you come back to it. So it's a short-term solution that's not even a solution. It's just actually adding to your problem. But with drugs, the consequences can become even more severe. So we can understand how this works. And drug use and drug addiction are very interesting to think about. And I mentioned this, I don't know if it was last week, but this idea that when you start to use a substance, you build up a tolerance. And when you also build up a tolerance, you can build up what is withdrawal symptoms, meaning that when you stop using that substance, your body experiences really negative symptoms, pains, uh, aches, headaches, very extreme even symptoms at times. And this is so interesting to think about, showing how we can adapt, unfortunately, to even really negative things to the point that when you don't put a poison into your body, you feel pain, that you feel a pain that only the poison in that immediate moment can take away. It's really remarkable, and I think I make the connection to relationships because sometimes when you enter a toxic relationship, you can get addicted to that, and then when you break up with that person, when you end that relationship, you feel an extreme pain, and the only thing that will immediately take away that pain is that person back in your life, having that toxic relationship again that is hurting you so much. It's really remarkable to see that we really can make ourselves adapt to really good things and really bad things. You start waking up every morning and exercising, people can almost get addicted to that and they almost automatically wake up and they want to work out. And if they don't work out, they feel like something is missing. Or you can get addicted to injecting heroin every morning. And when you wake up, when you don't have that in your body, you're going to feel like something is missing. You're going to feel really extreme pains and aches and different types of symptoms because that poison is not in your body. Something that actually is now, is actually going to hurt you is not in your body. And I think that's really amazing and something to keep in mind and a reminder of how important little steps we make are. Of course, when it comes to something like addiction, it can seem really severe. But when we try to build habits, we can get addicted to positive habits too. And if we start doing right things in the right direction, even if we take small steps, we can make ourselves get used to and almost get addicted to doing those positive things. And then when those positive things are missing, you will feel bad. Just like people who work out almost every day, if they don't work out for a few days, their body will feel almost restless like they need to work out. And so they get addicted to exercise in a positive way. So we can almost 
with effort and with planning, choose what we get addicted to. So maybe tying into what I was talking about to start off the segment, we almost all are addicted to things in the way that we need things. And we also use different coping mechanisms to help us feel better and just deal with our emotions and feelings that we're going through. And we can choose healthier or less healthy ones. And that's up to us to figure that out. So addiction is an incredibly powerful thing. You have the physiological parts of tolerance and the extreme withdrawal. Think about that. You tell someone, okay, quit using this drug or quit smoking or quit whatever it is. When they stop doing it, their body is going to go through some pretty extreme things. It's not so easy. And even actually, if you're really addicted to something like alcohol, um, you can die from the withdrawals. If you're drinking really, really, really extremely heavily, you have to be monitored when you're detoxing because your body can go through different types of things um, that lead to even death. It's that risky. So we see that when people are trying to quit, it's very complicated. Physiologically, they're going through a lot. Um, and then, of course, mentally and emotionally, there's the things that keep them drinking and keep them using the substance. But also what they have to be prepared for is that if you want to quit using that substance, it was serving some function, albeit a dysfunctional function, even though it was hurting you and harming you and hurting your life, it was serving some function and you have to come up with new coping mechanisms to replace that. And that can be a very difficult thing because none of the coping mechanisms you can come up with, let's say, listening to music, talking to a friend, which can be a great one, going to therapy, exercise, all very, very good, but they're really not going to act as quickly as the substance. Let's just be realistic. It's not going to work in the same way as strong as quickly uh, and maybe in a way that way effectively. But of course, it'll have much better long-term consequences and really none of the negative consequences of what you had with the substance and it can be very hard to make that replacement to trade getting some kind of immediate relief with some things that's a much slower and not as intense relief it can be hard to do that so when people are quitting and trying to maintain sobriety one of the challenges they do have is finding new ways of coping because without that just taking away the substance isn't the whole solution it's definitely a big part and a big start, but it's not going to be enough because you need to now, going back to the last segment, fill in that void. What's going to help you now? Also, if your addiction, as it often can be, comes from a lack of connection, both to yourself and others, you have to start to cultivate and create that more. Become more connected to yourself. Become more connected to others. Very often people with addiction have low self-esteem or might have a lot of anger or negative feelings towards themselves, resolving that. But there's going to be a lot of hard work that has to be done. And so if you're dealing with any kind of addiction, it's a tough battle and it's going to be hard. And some people don't like thinking of it as a lifelong thing, but I, from my experience, most of the times it is. There can be some people who are addicted to some substance and they go through a process and they come out of it and maybe they can still use that substance here and there and be okay. I don't want to say it's impossible, but for most people, that really isn't possible. They need to maintain their sobriety, both in the fact of not using that substance anymore, but also maintaining some level of treatment, whether it's going to groups, going to therapy, doing something to help them stay sober. It's not easy. So if you are dealing with it or if you know someone dealing with it, it is hard. 
don't judge people who are going through addiction. It's a very difficult thing. There's so much that goes into someone becoming an addict. It's not just because you're smarter or a better person or have better willpower than someone that you didn't become uh, addicted to some substance. And again, you probably are addicted to something. You might not realize what that is, but it's better to take a closer look. But I hope we can stop judging those who are going through addiction because of the negative impact it has by creating that and furthering that stigma and getting in the way of people seeking help. Um, there, there is help out there, and it's not one type of help. It's not one size fits all, but there are ways people can get help. And if you know someone who's dealing with an addiction, rather than putting them down, see if you can lift them up and help them recognize that they deserve to get help and there's help out there to hopefully uh, get them back on their feet and get them on the right path. So thank you to uh, Azar, Azar1313 for your um, input and to everyone else who commented and sent me requests for topics for tonight's program. I'll, I'll keep them in mind for future programs and feel free to send me more messages uh, in the future. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.